Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper, episode 146. What it takes to create the best place to work. This episode is brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated, enabling successful leaders and companies to accelerate to their next level of success. On the web at businessadvance.com. And now, here's Pam and Scott. Thanks, Chris. I'm Pam Harper, founding partner and CEO of Business Advancement Incorporated. And sitting right across from me, as always, is my business partner and husband, Scott Harper. Hi, Scott. Hi, Pam. It's great to join you again for another episode of Growth Igniters Radio. And as always, our purpose is to spark new insights, inspiration, and immediately useful ideas for visionary leaders to accelerate themselves and their companies to their next level of game-changing innovation, growth, and success. Now, Pam, we're coming up on Labor Day 2018 here in the U.S., and we're continuing to face a very tight labor market. According to a number of reports, job openings in many fields are continuing to outpace hiring. That's right. And with that level of competition, one thing remains a constant— it is critical to shape a work environment and culture that promotes employee engagement, commitment, and productivity. Yeah, That's why we're re-releasing our previous conversation with Dr. Ron Friedman, author of the highly acclaimed book, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. Yeah, that was a good one. I especially enjoyed our discussion of his cutting-edge research from the fields of neuroscience, behavioral economics, motivation, and creativity. He explains how leaders can promote smarter thinking, greater innovation, and stronger performance by understanding how people work. Another thing that was great about this conversation was that Ron shared a number of counterintuitive insights and actionable recommendations to both attract and retain key talent. He's also a great storyteller. Yeah, that he is. So with that, we're going to pick up on our conversation with Dr. Ron Friedman, author of The Best Place to Work. Stay with us. Here's a bit about Ron Friedman. He's an award-winning social psychologist who specializes in human motivation. Ron has served on the faculty of the University of Rochester, Nazareth College, and Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and has consulted for some of the world's most successful organizations. Ron is the author of a highly acclaimed new book called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. What a coincidence. Uh... He is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, Fast Company, Forbes, and CNN. Popular accounts of his research have also appeared on NPR and in major newspapers, including the New York Times, Financial Times, The Globe and Mail, Washington Post, The Guardian, as well as magazines such as Men's Health, Entrepreneur, and Success. Ron, welcome to Growth Igniters Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's get into this. You're a psychologist. What inspired you to write a book about the workplace? Well, it really stemmed from my experience of being in the corporate world. So I started off spending years teaching at colleges and universities, teaching uh, human motivation, cognitive psychology, the psychology of happiness. Mm -hmm. And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to go off into the corporate world. And uh, what got me into academics is I really enjoyed learning new things. And what you discover as an academic is that that learning process 
process essentially really slows down once you become a full-time professor because your job is to teach the same thing again and again. So I wanted to recapture that experience of learning new things. So I decided I'm going to go off into the corporate world and I became a pollster. So my job was to measure public opinion, figure out what people think, and then apply psychological principles in consulting to organizations and telling them what they need to say in order to be more persuasive. And the biggest surprise for me came in the experience of being an employee and coming to recognize that there was a massive divide between the things that psychologists know uh, as being the factors that contribute to motivation and creativity and productivity and how most organizations operate. And Mm -hmm. so I decided, you know what, I'm going to turn my attention to taking all the research that I've been studying for all of these years and translate them into plain English so that managers and employees alike can start applying the science of top performance. It's so important. In fact, you've written that, according to Gallup survey estimates, disengaged employees cost American businesses over $550 billion, billion each year. And yet almost nothing has changed since Gallup began tracing employee engagement near the turn of the 21st century. Now, you'd think with all the science and all the studies out there, people would know more how to influence engagement and commitment, but apparently they don't. So what's going on? Well, I think it it comes down to the disconnect between the science and the modern workplace. And so we have all of these great studies that academics are writing about for other academics. Uh And so if you ask the average employee, the average manager even, what would make them satisfied with their jobs instantly, you'll hear things like, I want a promotion, or Mm -hmm. I want a nicer office, or I want a raise. And while all of those types of improvements will lead to enjoyment and happiness in the short term, that happiness tends not to last. And it's because we're born with a brain that's designed to habituate to our circumstances. So if things are not going very well, we learn to live with it. But Mm -hmm. if things are Mm -hmm. going extremely well, we can't help it. We want more. And so I think what really needs to happen is for more people to become familiar with the science. And I think the appetite for that is growing. With the advent of books like Moneyball, there's more and more of an interest in data-driven recommendations. Also, in your book, you talk about the fact that the world of work is changing as why we would be more interested in, say, the psychology behind all this, which I thought really, it rings true to me. Yeah, that's right. Well, we're creating products with our minds now. You know, it used to be the case where you would come into a factory and your productivity was a direct function of your labor and the amount of hours you put in at the factory. And that is no longer the case. And productivity today is a function of the quality of your thinking, the level mm-hmm. of energy you bring to your work, and even your mood. If you think about the type of work that we do, much of it involves creativity and much of it involves collaboration. And the psychology of getting people in a good mood, getting them thinking bigger ideas is critical to performing at a high level. And that's why it's so important that we look at the research and figure Mm -hmm. out ways of making it actionable. Absolutely. I am so pleased that you're doing this because for years I've seen it. You know, I've I've known about these things really more intuitively. I'm not a psychologist. I have a background in organizational development. And the studies that back this up are incredibly important. Having this scientific knowledge, there's real research. So can you talk a little bit about what that science really is? Well, so it turns out what people want from their workplace is ultimately the same thing they want in every other domain in life, Mm -hmm. and that's to have psychologically fulfilling experiences. So we have decades of research that show that regardless of your age, your culture, where you were born, 
you have the same basic human psychological needs as everyone else. And it comes down to three main factors. The first is the need for competence. So feeling like you're good at what you do, but mm -hmm. also having the ability to grow that competence on a regular basis. It's not enough to feel like you're good at your job. You need to feel like you're mm -hmm. growing. Mm -hmm. The second need is the need for relatedness. So feeling like you're connecting to the people around you in a meaningful way, feeling appreciated, valued, respected, all the great things that come from strong human connections. And the final need is the need for autonomy. So feeling like you have a sense of choice and you endorse the behaviors that you're doing. You're not just doing it because a manager is telling you to do it. You're doing it because you believe this is how you want to invest your time and energy. And when we have our psychological needs met, we tend to be happier, healthier, and more productive and more engaged. And unfortunately, most organizations do a dreadful job of creating psychologically fulfilling experiences. And it's largely because of the fact that managers don't have time to read academic journal articles. <laughs> and even if they did, they're not written for managers. They're written for other academics. So it becomes really difficult for them to figure out how do I make people like one another? How do I make mm -hmm. people feel more competent? And that's right. what the best place to work is about. Yeah. And if people have these needs met, they are less stressed. And we all know that if you are less stressed, your brain, the part that thinks and creates and innovates, is going to be more in the loop. So you just do better altogether. And you have happier customers because yeah. of a process that psychologists refer to as mood contagion. And so if your customers are around employees who are happy, those customers are going to have better experiences, which translates into loyalty and greater earnings for the company. A lot of compelling reasons to do this. Well, we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, we'll speak more with Ron Friedman, author of The Best Place to Work, about the art and science of creating an extraordinary workplace. Stay with us. This is Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper, brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated. We're on the web at businessadvance.com. And we enable successful companies to accelerate to their next level of game-changing innovation and growth. We'd like to welcome our many listeners and especially our many new listeners. If you're not already subscribed to our Growth Igniters community, you can get even more value by signing up. You'll receive reminders of our new bi-weekly podcasts along with a link to a page filled with all kinds of resources. On off weeks, you'll receive a Growth Igniters post about a two-minute read. So go to growthignitersradio.com and click the red Sign Up Now button at the top right of the page. Welcome back to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper, that's me, and Scott Harper. Scott and I are speaking with Ron Friedman, the award-winning social psychologist who is the author of The Best Place to Work about the secrets behind creating an extraordinary work environment. Ron, how can people find out more about you and your book? Well, they can go to a couple places. They can uh, go to Amazon to look for the best place to work, or they can go to Ignite80.com. It's Ignite and the number 80.com. And the reason my company is called Ignite80 is because, as we will soon discuss, over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. And so the mission of Ignite80 is to reverse that trend by applying the latest science and teaching leaders how they can create better workplaces. Okay, now we're all going to remember that. <laughs> and you can find links and other information by going to growthignitersradio.com, episode 106, and scroll down under resources as well. 
So let's get back to our conversation. Now, Ron, in the first segment, we discussed how creating an extraordinary workplace is both an art and a science. One of the things that we've seen in our work is that employee engagement and commitment are essential for igniting and sustaining the momentum that it takes to create and achieve the game-changing results. Now, in your book, you talk about studies of video games that can be applied to building an extraordinary workplace. Tell us a little bit about that. So if you think about why people play video games. So first of all, what are they doing when they're playing video games? They're, they're, they're climbing imaginary mountains. They're uh-huh. uh, organizing all of these different shapes into different places. And they invest a ridiculous amount of time, often sacrificing their evenings and weekends in playing things that don't really have a, a really substantive reward. And the reason that video games are as addicting as they are, the reason we feel compelled and drawn to them is because they provide many of the experiences we desperately seek in our work. So Uh if you think about um, that psychological need we talked about for competence, feeling like you're getting better at the work that you do, if you write a memo at work, you don't get feedback on that memo often ever. Um, occasionally you will get some, some feedback from your manager in mm. every six months. But video games provide instantaneous feedback. And mm-hmm. so that's part of the reason why we find them so interesting. The other component is that they provide progressive difficulty. And what okay. I mean by that is that they get harder and harder as you play. And so if you think about a game like Angry Birds, mm-hmm. the right. first board, if you start downloading Angry Birds and start playing it, you're going to dominate that first board within a matter of seconds. And so right. immediately you get a win under your belt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as you keep going, the boards get more and more difficult. At work, our jobs tend to take the opposite trajectory, where when you first um, enter a new job, it's about as difficult as it is ever going to be within that first week. Mm-hmm. You need okay. to figure out what's the really expected. The learning expe- curve. Yeah, right. you need to figure out what's really expected of you. Mm-hmm. You need to determine who the real players are. You're trying to figure out the organizational culture. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. after a year or two, you get it, and that's when your job becomes predictable. And when a job becomes predictable, it becomes boring. And so we need to create organizations where that take the opposite trajectory and really mimic the video game where they start off at a moderate level of difficulty, mm-hmm. but then grow with us as we gain more skills. So you're constantly getting uh, more and more reward. That too, you get recognition from a video game, you're mm-hmm. getting rewarded when you mm-hmm. do something well. And so if we look at the um, at the principles that make video games successful, there's a lot we can learn about making better jobs. I want to just clarify real quick, everything you're talking about applies around the world, because we have listeners in Australia and the UK and everywhere else. These principles that we're talking about would apply to anyone in any country, correct? What we're talking, yeah, what we're talking about is the um, the principles that underlie the experience of competence, and competence has been demonstrated over and over again as a basic human need. And so, one of the reasons why people get disengaged at work is for one of two reasons. One is that they feel like their manager doesn't appreciate the work that they're doing, and that mm-hmm. they are not necessarily doing a good job because they don't have that feedback. So, not having mm-hmm. feedback is damaging to the experience of competence. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is that they feel like they're doing their job too well. And that's a problem too. So if you feel like you are absolutely acing it day in and day out, chances are that's not going to be enough for you. Now, let's talk a little bit more about uh, leaders and the leader's role in creating this better workplace. One of the things that you've written about is the leadership paradox. And forceful leaders, you say, actually may be less successful in developing groups that do the work well. 
Well, the reason that's the case is, is again, going back to the psychological needs. So we have a psychological need for autonomy, feeling mm-hmm. like the work that we're doing is our choice. And when you have a manager who is stifling and who okay. is micromanaging, it's very difficult to feel like the work you're doing is your choice. And so what I say in the book is that micromanagement is the motivational equivalent of buying on credit. Mm. You get an immediate product in the short term, but you end up paying a very high price for it later on. And this mm-hmm. is what often happens at organizations is somebody will uh, look find a new job and hand in their resignation. And oftentimes the, the, the manager is left wondering why the person left. Mm-hmm. And what they don't realize is that the basis for that decision was made not in the last two weeks but six months ago. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, it's because they did not feel like their need for autonomy was fulfilled. And mm-hmm. they didn't want to say anything. I've seen that so many times. And people would say, I, you know, I didn't feel comfortable telling them right. what they had even done. And that's hard. And the time delay between the yeah. action and the feedback is problematic because the learning doesn't happen. Yeah. But here's part of the, the paradox is, Say I'm a leader in an organization and I have pressures on me and things have to happen. I don't necessarily know what's happening. And so you say give people autonomy. Well, okay, I'm giving people autonomy. How can I reassure myself and the people above me who want results that things are going right? Yeah, I I appreciate you asking that, Scott. I think it's a very important question. So let me first clarify that that when I say autonomy, I'm not suggesting let people do whatever they want. (laughs) Like I'm not saying, you know, uh, if we just give everybody space, then things will happen because we all know that's not the case. Right. Uh, What it does come down to, however, is understanding how the experience of autonomy comes about. And so so there are some very concrete things that you can do as a manager to support people's autonomy while still communicating the expectations. Mm -hmm. So for example, when you're introducing a new project to the people on your team, start off by explaining the value the project is going to have Mm -hmm. for the organization, for the department, and for the people involved. Okay, the why of it. The why, exactly. So we spend so much time talking about the how. Here's how you should go do these things. Mm -hmm. We don't spend enough time uh, focusing on the why. And we assume as leaders that the people who are on our team share our understanding about the value of every activity. And they're just not privy to the same information as we are. They're not on the same memos. They're not in the same uh, offsites. They don't have that understanding. And so uh, introducing a new project by talking about the why is critical. Another thing you can do is you can focus on the outcome, right. say this is what we're looking to achieve, and invite the people on your team to suggest a process. You yeah. want to avoid mapping out every detail because at that point, that becomes stifling and undermines people's experience of autonomy. So this is what we need to have happen, and these are the things that will define success. Now go make it happen. What do you see are, the, are some possible solutions? Yes. So do it in the form of asking a question right. and then steer the conversation. Okay. A very important uh, thing. And in fact, we're big fans of having people develop process. That's that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Not clunky, but just enough to guide people so that they can get done what needs to be and done. And if they co-create it, then they own it. Yeah. Precisely. So yeah. to the extent that they feel like they have ownership over the process, they're much more likely to be engaged. Okay. Switching gears a little bit, we talk about the satisfaction of the job itself and all of that. One of the things that 
I've seen is how big a difference it makes when people feel part of the community. This is a big, big deal. And you write about how friendships with our colleagues make us more productive. How does that happen? You know, it's a very interesting question. So if you ask managers, should people be close at work, you you get a mixed response. Some people see the value immediately, but others have this idea that, you know, I don't want my people being too close with one another because then they're going to start gossiping or they'll start showing favoritism or they'll start fooling around at work. But in fact, if you look at the, the data on this, we have research out of Wharton that shows that, in fact, if you're putting together a team, that team is much more likely to be successful if it's comprised of people who know and like one another than if it's comprised of strangers who are specialists. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's because if people know and like one another, they're better able to focus on doing their work and not worry about whether or not they're fitting in. We forget about how much time and mental energy is spent worrying about, do do people like me? Do they respect me? That's a waste of time from a productivity perspective. The other thing that happens is that they're more open with their feedback. So, Pam, if you and I know and like one another, if I feel like you're making a mistake, I'll come over to you and I'll tell you that. But if we Uh don't know one another, I'm going to stay quiet. I'm going to let you make your mistake. And the third thing is I'm personally more likely to come to you and ask for help because now I'm not as concerned about how that reflects on me. Mm-hmm. Well, so the trust f- is higher. The trust is higher. And yeah. so for all of those reasons, you get people being more productive when they feel like they're part of a community, but they also like their job more. They are less likely to quit. And that means you are spending less time and energy trying to f- fill empty spots and um, you're retaining your top performers. In your book, I really like the way that you brought out how leaders could use some principles from the research to enable this kind of friendship to blossom. The, the studies were fascinating. Building on that, the question is how to get people to do more of what they need to do. And you say you can't tell them, micromanage, or it's less effective to. So there's this uh, image uh, and idea of uh, mimicry or emulation that you talk about. How does that work out? And what's the science behind that? So we have research showing that leadership behaviors ripple through an organization. So if a leader is someone who's very composed, the organization tends to operate in a similar fashion. But when, an or- when a leader is narcissistic, the organization tends to be a little bit more aggressive and trying mm-hmm. to take on hostile takeovers and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, and so I talk about using mimicry to your advantage as a leader by modeling the behaviors you'd like to see in others. Okay, so if I want people to come to me with information that's important to the company, I can model by giving them information and by listening, yes? Demonstrating transparency is another wonderful way. Or, you know, if you are interested in getting people to learn from mistakes and come forward when a mistake happens, you can model that yourself by talking about mistakes you've made in the past. And this would be very important in the companies where they are going through a very high rate of growth, which is a lot of where our listeners live. And uh, there's so much uncertainty. And so this ability to be willing to make mistakes, uh, learn from the failure. Everybody has to be open to it. So this mimicry you're talking about would be very powerful there. Modeling, right. Modeling. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's essential because, you know, what ends up happening in a lot of organizations where a manager says, we have no room for failure. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. might think by saying that, that you're raising the bar for people's performance, but what you're really doing is you're essentially rewarding them for covering up when mistakes happen. Yeah. 
And yeah. that's a really dangerous problem to have as a manager. If mistakes are happening and you're not aware of it, you can't repair the process that is creating that. And so other people are likely to repeat that same mistake again and again. So talking about mistakes that have happened and making improvement the goal for your team is ultimately the best thing you can do. Don't make perfection the goal, make improvement the goal. Yeah. Absolutely. So we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Scott and I will talk more with Ron Friedman, author of The Best Place to Work, about more immediately actionable ideas that you can use to create an extraordinary workplace. Stay with us. You are listening to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper, brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated on the web at businessadvance.com. Does your company have what it takes to meet your current commitments and move fast enough to respond to new opportunities? Take the first step to confirm your perspective by requesting our free resource, Five Questions to Ask When You Need to Move Even Faster. Our questionnaire will help you find out where to begin to focus your energy and resources so what should be happening really is happening faster and more effectively. We've developed these questions based on our work with clients in over 30 industries. We've helped them scale faster, make innovation happen faster, and more quickly respond to new opportunities. This has generated millions of dollars in top and bottom line growth. Now you can have this resource on a complimentary basis just for sharing your valid contact information with us. So don't miss out. Go today to growthignitersradio.com and select episode 106. Scroll down to resources and click the link download five questions to ask when you need to move even faster. And to learn more about our success stories, go to businessadvance.com client results. Welcome back to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper. Over the last two segments, Scott and I have been talking about the secrets behind creating an extraordinary work environment with Ron Friedman, the award-winning social psychologist who is author of The Best Place to Work. Ron, can you tell people again how they can find out more about you and your book? They can check on Amazon for the best place to work, or they can actually go to, I'm going to give you a different website now just to keep things interesting, uh, thebestplacetoworkbook.com, where you can download the opening chapter for free. Oh, that's great. And again, you can find links and other information by going to growthignitersradio.com, episode 106, and scroll down under resources. Now we're back to the immediately useful ideas section of this podcast. And let's start out with something that is sort of a sacred thing to many folks. It's the Employee of the Month Award. You know, you say that this one, not, not usually so good for motivation. Can you talk about why? And even more importantly, what should leaders be doing instead? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because it is a very well-intentioned idea. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the notion that we're going to take an employee who's done an exceptional job and we're going to reward that person. Uh-huh. Right. But what it does is it creates a competition between employees for recognition. So if I'm interested in winning the award, I may be less likely now to recognize someone else on the team or someone else in another part of the organization because I want to win the award myself. So, so recognition becomes a zero-sum game. That's problematic. Another thing mm-hmm. that happens is that if you have a, a, a an organization with 100 people, you're going to have one winner and 99 people walking away feeling like this month's efforts weren't recognized. Mm-hmm. 
So mm. there are lots of reasons why we should question the value of the Employee of the Month award. What we should do instead is stop trying to make recognition something that happens from the top down. What you want to do is create an organization where employees are recognizing one another, and it just becomes part of the culture of Mm -hmm. the company. And if you are interested in trying to get the ball rolling on that, one thing you can try to do is every once in a while during a meeting, make it a common practice where you try to recognize someone for their efforts over the last week or over the last month. And as a leader, again, if you model that behavior because you're someone who's looked at more carefully because you're someone with higher standing, Mm -hmm. that behavior is likely to be mimicked by other people on your team. Mm -hmm. Ah, so immediately, as soon as people are done listening and they go into a meeting, they should be thinking about who in their team they could recognize. Is that right? It is right. And I think you want to do it authentically. So if you're not someone who has typically re- recognized other people in the past, start slow. Figure mm-hmm. out someone who's, whose efforts you really are appreciative of. And then be specific. Don't just say, great job. Say, yeah. I really appreciated uh, the depth of research you brought to the presentation. It so was the so behavior. Valid. The, beha- the behavior. Exactly. The mm-hmm. behavior. And then explain the impact on you. It really made it easier for me to do my job and others on the team to be successful because of your work. That makes it personal to the individual and it helps them identify exactly the behavior that they need to repeat in the future. Mm-hmm. So it's immediate, it's specific, it's tied to a meaningful outcome. Going back to that why again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Precisely. That makes sense. Now, you also write about something else that can help people feel more engaged and committed. And that's giving them a budget for customizing their workspace. That's not intuitively obvious. Why is that helpful? Well, the reason it's helpful is because when we have the freedom to shape our environment, we experience a sense of control. Ah. And that sense of control um, gives us more confidence that our work is controllable because it spreads to our full experience, but it also allows us to direct our mental energy towards doing our work and not worrying about our environment. So when you customize a space, you have a sense of control over it, and that spreads to your experience at work. And in fact, we have research showing that if you bring people into an office and you allow one group to customize it, and for the other group, you say, just here's here's the test, go take the test. Mm-hmm. The group that has what, had the ability to customize their space will perform at a 32% higher level as a function of having customized their space before they began. And so there are a number of organizations that have started utilizing this insight, companies like Etsy uh, mm-hmm. and companies like DreamWorks, where they provide new employees with a very, very small budget. It could be as low as $100 um, that allows the individual to customize their desk and thereby allows them to feel more comfortable doing the work that they do. The other thing that's interesting here is that there's related research showing that if you are working in an organization and you're interested in figuring out who's engaged in their job and who isn't, Mm -hmm. um, simply look around at their desk. And if a person has has personalized their space by either by putting pictures up of their family or by taking a, a picture that they feel connected to and putting it up on the wall, that's a good indication that they consider their 
um, their desk home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I was going to say that. It, it's like a little home. What do you do in situations that we're seeing more of where people are sitting in one room? For example, we went into one company where it was a large room and all the, in this case, it was a group of managers, high-level managers, were all sitting around a table. They all had phones, mm-hmm. uh, but there was no desk per se. How could they customize under a situation like that? Are they working like that full time? Yep. Yep. <laughs> They're all sitting around at the same desk? Yep. Open office, it's called. Oh, the, you're referring to an open office. Okay. Yeah. So, well, so here, literally a large yeah, conference one, table. One big conference, <laughs> one table, conference table with 20 people sitting table. around it. Yeah. Well, we, we should probably get them a copy of the book. <laughs> um, so here's, here's what I would say about that. And I, you know, this is something I, I tackle in the book is, is the second chapter is about design and how yeah. you can leverage the science of place to improve performance at work. And it, it is really critical to have a space where you feel comfortable uh, and not feeling observed, where you have some distance, both in terms of space, but also in terms of sound. Just mm-hmm. having the freedom to think is so critical. And what happens in a lot of organizations with open offices is that people feel like they have to come in early or stay late or work over the weekend because it's the only time where they can actually think straight. And, you know, it's something that we have to consider when we think about what makes for top performance. A lot of times we assume that it's the extroverts who are better at their job because they're more uh, confident, they're speaking, they're more boisterous at meetings. Mm -hmm. But uh, half the workplace is comprised of introverts. And introverts don't function in precisely the same way. And for them, it's essential to have an opportunity to think. And so I talk in the book about about, – modeling organizations after college campuses where you provide people with a range of different spaces that they can use to match up their environment to their task. And so you get, provide people with a space they can customize. You provide them with quiet a quiet library or a quiet conference room they can take for whenever they need to, to think away from others. And you provide them with those social spaces like cafeteria spaces or spaces that are modeled after places like Starbucks where mm-hmm. they can connect with others mm-hmm. without feeling like they're necessarily in a meeting. Having a range of options can be very beneficial to all aspects of work. So that really gets at uh, that second point, which is no matter what kind of office configuration you have, uh, you can decorate a desk or a cube area, or you can go out for a walk, or you can do something, Mm -hmm. sit in the cafeteria if you have one. There's always something today that you can do to customize your space. And, you know, and even if if the if ha- hanging a picture up on the wall isn't something that is pe- something that is available to people, still providing them with that budget to say here's um, a little bit of money that we want you to we want you to be comfortable with the mm-hmm. work that you do and and so that they can buy, you know, uh, some type of light that makes their desk easier to work on or okay. they can buy a cushion for the back of their chair so that they're comfortable because comfort isn't an extravagance. It's essential to working at a high level. Mm-hmm. Okay. So all this really goes to addressing, in some respects, the limits of the mind and the body, which you also talk about. Mm-hmm. We have to be thinking about the fact that we're all unique uh, beings. What else can you tell us that we could look at that honors this limit of the mind and body? Well, you know, I spent a good portion of the book talking about the importance of disconnecting. Right. And so, you know, in the past, if you wanted to work in the evenings or on the weekends, you had to plan ahead. I mean, we remember this period where you had to take a file, you had to put it in your bag, you had to take it home. 
now, if you don't want to work on the evenings or the weekends, you have to plan ahead. Um, yeah. And we have evidence showing that the people who work around the clock on the uh, on, over overnight and work uh, over the weekends, they're the ones who end up taking a hit to their engagement a year down the road, and it's because they get burnt out. And so we have to be very vigilant about the extent to which we're working because – how we work is no longer just a function of what happens between the hours of nine to five. And so there are all these great examples of organizations that are actively paying people to stop working. And uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, Daimler, which is an auto manufacturer in Germany. Mm -hmm. And yes. they have a, a policy where if someone's away on vacation – uh, they have a practice where their emails get auto-responded to. So, for example, if uh, Scott's away and Pam's at work, hopefully mm -hmm. that doesn't happen too often. Hopefully you guys <laughs> go on vacation together. Yeah. Uh, but whoever is emailing Scott will get a message that says, Scott's away for the next week. You can email Pam if you need immediate assistance. And, mm -hmm. oh, by the way, if you are interested in reaching Scott, you should email him again next week, which is when he gets back because this email is going to be deleted. And what that does is it enables Scott to enjoy his vacation without the temptation of checking the server because if he does go check his email, there's nothing there. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, it prevents him from having to dig himself out of email when he gets back to work. Mm -hmm. And so he can use that time he has spent re-energizing um, proactively rather than just responding to other people's requests. And that's just one example of ways that we need to think about how do we position people to perform at a high level. And part of that process requires that we allow them to get the rest that they need. Mm -hmm. So people out there, set your uh, autoresponders. Well, so any final thoughts about the extraordinary workplace? In fact, what will the workplace look like 10 years from now? Well, I think we're going to get a lot better at figuring out how to disconnect. As I mentioned mm -hmm. before, uh, you know, the, the phone is something we, we forget about this. The iPhone has only been around for eight years. It's a, it's a baby technology. We have just started to figure out how to work with this device that allows us to be in our office 24-7 right. that is built to make everything feel urgent with all of its alerts and pop-ups and buzzings. So I think we're going to get better at that. I also think that we're going to get better at applying some of the science and the analytics to figuring out how to create better workplaces. So um, – I give the example in the book about Moneyball, about how it completely transitioned the way that organizations now think about um, how to create a great team within sports. And so now every sport – so let me just tell the story of Moneyball. If For those who aren't familiar, um, Moneyball is about how for generations, baseball teams assumed they needed home run hitters in order to be successful. And then they brought in a team of Harvard uh, statisticians, and, and, and those statisticians uncovered a very interesting finding, which is that it's not home run hitters that lead to wins. It's on base percentage. So mm -hmm. it's those – those uh, players who are doing the uncharismatic things like taking walks or hitting mm -hmm. singles. You want mm -hmm. more of those on your team because the more people you have on base, the more runs you're going to score. And so that insight completely transformed the sport of baseball. And now every sporting team has their own analytics person on staff to figure out what are we doing wrong and how do we fix it by looking at the data. Mm -hmm. I think workplaces are going in that direction where every organization is, is going to have their fingers on the pulse of their organizational engagement and figure out what are some tweaks we need to make immediately. And just the final thing I'll say about where I think work is headed is I think we're going to get a lot smarter about calibrating the tasks that we do to our energy levels. And so we have research showing that if you're looking to make good decisions, if you're looking to do some 
careful planning, you want to do that when your energy levels are high. So for most people, that's early in the morning. But if you're trying to be creative, you don't want to do that first thing in the morning because that mental edge that you have for that's essential for planning is actually counterproductive when it comes to creativity. When you're trying to be creative, you actually don't want to be too sharp because you that prevents you from considering ideas that might not be particularly relevant. And creativity comes from combining ideas, some of which don't on the surface appear to be particularly relevant to one another. You want to be a little unhinged. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and hinge is strong, but okay. Well, <laughs> slightly. Um, slightly. You know, this is why having an alcoholic beverage can make you more creative, makes you better at <laughs> problem solving. And so there's there's some serious evidence showing that go drink a beer. In fact, there's there's a beer that's being marketed in Europe as the problem solver. <laughs> and I love it. Um, it, on the back of the beer, it'll help you calculate how much alcohol you should imbibe to reach your peak creativity by using this research. <laughs> Wow. So I think we're going to get smarter about that. It's not just about showing up at work and trying hard. Now we have to get smarter about matching our tasks to the way our brains and bodies operate. All right. Oh, okay. Well, Ron, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Truly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks, Ron. And thanks to you out there for listening to Growth Igniter's Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper. To get show notes and resource links for this week's episode, go to growthignitersradio.com, select episode 106. Until next time, this is Pam Harper and Scott Harper wishing you continued success and leaving you with this question to discuss with your team. What's one thing we can do starting today to use scientific thinking to create an extraordinary workplace? Growth Igniters and Growth Igniters Radio are service marks of Business Advancement Incorporated. All Growth Igniters Radio episodes are copyrighted productions of Business Advancement Incorporated, intended for the private use of our audience. Except as otherwise provided by copyright law, all other uses, including copying, editing, redistribution, and publication without prior written consent of Business Advancement Incorporated, are prohibited. All rights reserved.